A quick note about this chapter. It contains profanity and graphic depictions of child abuse and sexual assault that some listeners may find disturbing. Also, in almost every episode of this podcast, the voice of Sean Sinisi is read by voice actor James Sullivan. But for this episode, the family shared with us an audio tape of Sean, what seems to be one of the only remaining recordings of him. It was captured during an interview with his attorney. So in this episode, it is Sean's actual voice that you will hear. From Advance Local and Meadowlark Media, I'm Sarah Gannam. This is the mayor of Maple Avenue. Chapter 4. Okay, so it's January 15th, 2018. I'm at the ranch. I'm here with Sean Sinisi and with Jill Curley, his mental health treatment provider, and we're conducting an interview, and I just want to make sure it's okay that I take this interview, Sean? Yes. Okay. On Sean Sinisi's very last day at the ranch rehab facility, his attorney Andy Shubin went to visit him to tape a conversation with Sean and his counselor. He wanted to get on the record the abuse that Sean suffered at the hands of Jerry Sandusky. Although it's hard to know for sure, it appears this is the first documented time that Sean really opens up about the extent of the abuse that he endured. So I know I'm taking you back to 2000 when you were eight years old. But do you remember anything of that first time that you went to the second mile? I just remember like jumping off like the, the swimming pool, diving board, like high dives and stuff. Uh-huh. Sean starts at eight years old when he first met Jerry Sandusky in the year 2000 when the psychologist treating his brother Josh recommended that his mother get both boys involved in the second mile. I mean, I knew who he was. He was the old Penn State defensive coordinator. And I just kind of looked up to him. I admired him. And I was a football player then. I loved football. So I just, I don't know. I just kind of like looked up to him. Next thing I remember was we were getting invited to the Lake Mont Casino. And that's when I actually physically met, met him. Not inside the program or anything like that when he asked us to be his guests. This is the casino night that Sean and his brother Josh and their parents were invited to as special guests of honor. I remember we got acknowledged and we stood up. I remember him speaking and then we got acknowledged as his guests. And there was a picture taken of all three of us, me, my brother and him, putting out to the mirror in the newspaper. I'm pretty sure that was the first time I ever stayed at his house was that night, so you, right afterwards. Do you remember going back to his house from Altoona? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. He, I think he picked us up at our house and then drove us there to the Lake Mont Casino. And then parents may have met us there afterwards. I remember my parents being there afterwards. After what? After the fundraiser was over. Okay. Like, Gave us our bags of clothes and stuff. I don't remember right. if they came or they were just sitting out there waiting. I don't remember exactly, but I just remember staying in his house that night afterwards. Okay. 
And when you you stayed there, you think you stayed with Josh? And the, is it your recollection that that was the first time you were at his house? I believe so, yeah. So you're... Before we went to bed, like, he sat there on the bed and, like, talked to me and him. Like, gave us, like, bear hugs, as he called them. And then, like, kissed us on the forehead, like, goodnight. Like, I just felt, like, special. Like, right. of all people at his camps, we got picked out to go. Sean is describing the grooming that sex offenders often use to manipulate victims and their families so that when the molestation begins, it's harder for the victim to report it and harder for people around them to believe it. As the tape goes on, Sean details many times and places where he says he was abused. What you're going to hear is graphic. I remember being in the pool with him, groping me, and then just like, I pushed his hand away. You'd just be like, oh, I didn't mean to, or something like that. Like, just play it off. Like, I thought it was an accident. Right. It just continuously started to happen. During the camp sessions, it seems like you remember specifically the the groping in the pool. Um, yeah. The dorm room, too. And I do remember going to the uh, Penn State campus, like locker rooms, the shower rooms. Right, right weight room. Right. Like we worked out for a little bit, then changed in the locker room, and then he made a uh, showers in there. Right, right. I know he groped me a couple different times in there. I didn't right. really think nothing of it. I just thought it was like an accident. Right, right. I was young, like, get in the shower, and then like he'd start like, goofing off, start whipping like wet towels around, mm-hmm. and then like he groped me a couple different times in the shower. Well, and so when you say grope, did I he grabbed my penis. And did he masturbate you? He tried to. And like, I like, pulled it away and, and like he just stopped. Okay. And so in the showers, you recall him grabbing your penis. Do you recall whether he had erections in the shower? Yeah. Okay. I thought it was weird. I didn't really know like what to do. Right. kind of felt really uncomfortable and, and like I like, kind of walked away back into the locker room and so, dressed. I remember going to his house like we had right. wrestled and stuff. In his basement? Yeah, his room, right? and it would always end up in like a bear hug and yeah, uh, he start rubbing my thighs and rubbing his hands around my waistline right. and he'd grope me a couple different times and like, I'd pull his hand away and like, he'd always tipple us and it was like the same routine. Like if I stayed in the one right in the door on the left and you walk in the house, you do things like as far as like the pickle time, you pull me on top of him, feeling the erection. Like when my brother would be in the shower, he'd pull us like on top of him and like he'd face me and he'd just like hug you really tight. And like he'd ask you to hug him back. And just remember, like, laying there sometimes, and, like, you just, like, start rubbing my thighs and, like, slowly going up further. And then, like, I'd push his hand away, and then he'd do it again. And then there was a couple of times that he just actually, like, got in my waistline and groped me. And, like, I pulled it away, and then he'd just, like, try to play it off and, like, tickle me then. Right, right. And, like, I felt uncomfortable. I didn't know anything. Like, 
felt like it was an accident, but at the same time, I didn't feel like it was an accident. I didn't know what to think. Like, I still thought, like, I don't know, like, it was, I was privileged to be there with him. Right. Like, all the other kids, he picked me. Go anything else? No, not until the football camp got here. Sean recalls the football camp, the one where he called his parents to come and get him early, the one that everyone in his life seemed to wonder about for years. Well, I thought I was there for a day. I remember getting there, and my brother was put um, in the, the coach's section, I guess it was. I don't know. It was like a different section of like the dorm where the coaches would sleep. And I was on the section for like the campers. Right. And I think we got there before like any of the other people got there yet. And he came in the room that night and uh, like laid in my bed with me. Like he did like the typical thing, bear hug thing. And he rubbed my penis a couple different times and like it just felt really uncomfortable because I started getting a little older and I just didn't feel comfortable. Like, I knew something was wrong. I didn't know what, and I didn't have my brother there that year in the dorm with me. And I just remember starting to like cry and said, I want to go home. Then he let me call him and my mom. And I think they may have stayed through the day or they may have came that night. I don't recall ever saying, don't talk about it, don't say nothing. Right. All the rest of the kids didn't have that experience. Right. Do you recall um, after the camps whether you stayed in touch with Jerry? I remember getting like grants or scholarships or something for my brother for school. And that's when I just stopped going around him, stopped like answering his phone calls. I don't ever remember him getting mad or anything, but I just started self-medicating all the time. After a while, the recording stops, and it starts again in a different room. This time, it's just Sean and his attorney. On the recording, Andy Shubin and Sean talk about how there were things that Sean did not feel comfortable sharing in front of the counselor. He says it's because she's a woman. But Shubin wants to get them on the record, so they pick back up again without her. All right, so Sean, we're going to go back over parts of the interview. This time it's just you and me, and we're in a, a different room. Is it okay if I continue to record you? Yes. And you felt uncomfortable. You started by saying you felt uncomfortable because Jill was in the room for most of it or some of it. And so when we were talking about the sex acts... Um, just about bears. Right. Well, I mean, that's fine. So I think that's why it's good that we're having a few minutes by ourselves. So let's go back to the shower. So we've already talked about the snapping of the towels and groping you in the shower. So you were just about to talk to me about the shower head. It put soap on my head. And on my back, he washed my back and then lifted me up like under the shower head and like, like all like the soap run off. 
and like he grabbed my ass, slapped my ass, and groped my penis. And I don't recall him ever like making me grab his. I don't know. Like I just remember seeing an erection in the shower, like while he had me lifted up. And Do you recall feeling his penis while he had you lifted up? Once or twice, yeah. Right. I remember feeling it. And was that around where your butt was? Yeah. Okay. Do you I remember it being really uncomfortable and I just wanted to leave the locker room and I Do- ended up walking out after he put me down. Sean goes back over some of the other instances too. Blown on my legs and my inner thighs and I had shorts on. I had the basketball shorts on or the gym, whatever you want to call them, gym shorts. Right. Whatever he gave me. Uh, and we're getting like presents from them. Right. Like sweatsuit type things. Yeah. New shoes. And blowing on my stomach down towards my waistline. Pulling my pants like kind of down like towards like my penis area, but not fully down. And just blowing there. And he broke right. my penis. Right. Blowing, like all the normal like stuff that he do, like blowing on my stomach down towards like my penis and my inner thighs and broken my penis a couple of different times and I'd feel his like erection in his pants. Right. And I was like, he'd pull me on top of him and I'd just feel his erection getting hard. And you were wearing the shorts that he gave you or yeah. I think it said second mile on it or something or I think we had a couple different pairs. I think we got one from every camp. This tape, what Sean is sharing, it really puts into perspective what we know about his life, why it went the way that it did, what he was dealing with privately in his mind, and his hesitation to tell his story when investigator Anthony Sassano first came to the Sinisi home and asked to speak to Sean. I just remember my mom, like, I don't know, they got Anthony Sassano somehow got I think my mom. Right. And then we set up some type of a uh, meeting. We met at uh, my church's, like, rec hall, not rec hall, but, like, the offices for, like, the priests and stuff where it would be quiet. There was nobody around. Nobody would know. And, like, he asked me questions. Was it just him or was there someone else with him? Pretty sure it was just him. They asked me if anything happened. I just said about like, the rubbing of the thigh and the leg and stuff. I never right. told him anything else happened. At that point in time, I was older and I was already getting high and stuff. Right. And when I came out, I was like a year out of high school and I was drinking and drugging. And I knew it was intentional at that point. So you would have been like 18 or 19 years old at that point, right? Yeah. And I mean, even before that, like, I knew that it was intentional. Like, right. as I got, like, older into, like, junior high, high school, and, like, I started, like, self-medicate and experiment with things, started using to deal with, like, the emotional pain from it, like, that I let something like that happen as a kid. And, like, I felt like it was wrong, but I didn't want to think it was wrong. And then he reveals that there was one point in particular, after Sandusky's arrest, that was a turning point for him. I remember at one point in time, somebody wanted us to testify on Jerry's behalf. 
a moment that none of his family particularly remembered, but clearly affected Sean in a great way. I just remember something being said that he wanted us, he wanted me and my brother to testify on his behalf Mm -hmm. and say that he wasn't that type of a person. So and that just like really fucked me up mentally then. Like how could he fucking do something like that knowing that he fucking did shit to me? So then I just got into drugs even more. And then I started getting in legal trouble. I started selling drugs. Right. Support my habit and make money at the same time. Couldn't really keep jobs. Right. So I was getting high for a while and then like I'd always like I'd work for a while then I'd just find myself like wanting to call off work get high all the time just lay around sell drugs and started up got put in like my first drug bust and there was always like doubt like people thought that there was an issue like something happened to me but I always denied it like even like the judges, like my judge always asked, like, because my mom would write letters to the judge saying that she thought there was something there. She thought something had happened to me from it, but I always denied it. And the judge even asked me, did anything happen? Because if something happened, now's the time to do something about it. Right. I didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, you are ready. I just said, no, nothing happened. I just buried it even more. And took drug court, started doing good, stayed clean for a little bit. And then next thing I know, I found myself, I was working and ended up getting laid off the day after uh, Black Friday in like 2013 and 14. Started selling drugs again. By this time in his life, Sean has been struggling with addiction for a decade. And even his own retelling of the events seemed to exhaust him. Ended up catching a drug sale on the rehab for part of the SIP program. Started abusing some pills. I was doing heroin again, trying to beat the system and be able to get high for a little bit, like two or three times. And then it got to the point where I just kind of said, fuck it. Wanted to go back over to jail. Got out, stayed clean for two months. I transferred to another halfway house. Out of the five other people in there, four of them had needles hanging out their arm, and I relapsed instantly. It was just off to the races there. I blew the levels of the opiates through the roof. I'd never seen that high of a level before on a drug test, and they sent me back to jail. Eleven and a half months got out of uh, May 30th of 2017, and I was out for 23 days, I relapsed, and like the first two days, I failed a drug test for Suboxone three weeks later. Sean talks about the chaos of his life and how it splintered out and manifested in different ways, not just drug abuse, but also his ability to understand healthy relationships. I mean, this may be hard to talk about, but sexually, your first sexual experiences were with a pedophile, with an abusive, you know, pedophile who attached it to this pretend love, right? Well, my sexual relationship has always been with, like, girls that were, like, not even worthy of anything. Right. They were just, like, found myself taking advantage of girls and just sleeping with them. 
do you feel like you'll ever be able to have a healthy sexual life? I mean, is it something that you're... I mean, I do to an extent, but like all my relationships, like I always find myself getting like too attached to them and just constantly be around them. Throughout much of this recording, Sean seems to be recounting his own erratic behavior in a pretty straightforward manner, almost as if he's telling someone else's story. But toward the end of the interview, he interjects something rather reflective. We talked about what it did to me mentally and then kind of my drug addiction leading into legal issues because of my drug addiction. He says we talked about what he did to me mentally. And he connects it to his addiction, to the unexpected trajectory of his life, of the life of the mayor of Maple Avenue. Um, basically stealing, like, my childhood, like, yeah. up until the age of now. Like, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know who I am anymore. Right. He stole, like, my childhood from me. Like, I, didn't, I didn't have a life to grow up to. Like, Do you feel like you've addressed some of those issues here? Yeah, I mean, some. Like, I mean, I'm still trying to, like, figure out, like, who I am, like, I know, like, some hobbies that I used to love doing, but, like, I know, like, I'm still just trying to figure out who I am. Shortly after this, the recording ends. If you're an addict, the last place in my mind you should be is with 12 other addicts living in a house. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense to me. He just said, I can't stay here. You know, everywhere I go, there's there's Narcan hanging on the bathroom walls. It's everywhere down here. I don't think that treatment needs to be fun. I get it, you know what I mean? But I think you need to be comfortable. He was clearly uncomfortable. We need to break him. I want him broken down in the fetal position on the floor begging. And then we will bring him back up and build him again. That freaked me out bad. And that's when I was like, oh my God, what did I do? Who is this guy? I guess, you know, in hindsight, you look back and I think, God, was I so stupid. But now I look at it and I say, no, I was so desperate. The Mayor of Maple Avenue is written and produced by me, Sarah Gannam, in partnership with Penn Live and Meadowlark Media. Additional writing was done by Carl Scott at Meadowlark Media. We could not have done this project without funding from the Fund for Investigative Journalism and the Pulitzer Center. Our associate producers are Tori Whitten, Sarah Ruberg, and Ethan Schreier. Additional reporting was done by Charlie Thompson, Aaron Kasinitz, and Andrea Keckley. The executive producers are Kate Barron, Burke Noel, and Teresa Bonner for PenLive, and Carl Scott for Meadowlark Media. The Mayor of Maple Avenue was edited by James Sullivan and Gabriel Rojas at WUFT in Gainesville, Florida, by Jake Gloth at Cedar Production, Martin Boutros at Penn Studios, and Stephen Smith at Meadowlark Media. Sound design was done by Jesse Pearlstein, Alexander Ritchie, Martin Boutros, and Ryan Ross Smith. Our mixing and mastering engineer was Robin Wise. 
Our theme music and much of the score was composed by Pete Redman, with additional music by Alexander Ritchie, Jesse Pearlstein, and Ryan Ross-Smith. Our team also includes production assistants Megan Lavie-Heaton, Joe Hermit, Sarah Tantawi, photographer Sean Simmers, and consultants John Hammontree and Neville Elder. Our legal counsel is Richard Bernstein. The podcast cover art was designed by Andy Ross. 